listening to the Ecclesia of Noonan Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to show your support, find out more information, check out our website, ecclesianoonan.com. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, here we go uh, in what is a description. <clears throat> Today's uh, sermon is really wrapped around a description of false teachers, which it feels has been the case for a while, uh, or at least that we've heard this several times before. And that's because it's a common theme of what Peter's wanting to do. He's wanting people to understand the nature of false teachers. Now, understand that just because you're a false teacher doesn't mean you are all of these things. Does that make sense? So the descriptions that we're going through here particularly are meant for um, this particular context, and they're dealing with this particular uh, false teaching. Uh, and so Peter are Peter is sort of uh, confronting uh, this particular teaching and rebuking these particular ha- behaviors. Um, and I, I think something that, that that you should know about false teachers is if they are anything, they are cunning, right? Does that make sense? Um, Today, specifically, we're talking about uh, the heresy and the, her- the heresy that says Jesus is not returning. Justice will not come, right? Um, so there, there are many, many, many in our culture who do not stand behind pulpits but, but believe this. Does that make sense? That, 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 in fact, God is not coming. And in fact... When you uh, sort of look at this uh, with sort of eyes that say, this has nothing to do with me, if you were to think for just a moment of the fact that Jesus promised to come back 2,000 years ago, and it would seem by Paul's tone that he was convinced that it may be in his own lifetime, especially in his early ministry. I think his tone changes as the ministry goes through, as you read Paul through Philemon and sort of figure all that out. Um not 100 years, not 200, not 500, not a millennia, but two of them later. Has everyone in the room had the same thought as me at one point in your Christian life and said, is he really coming back? Have you ever ever had that thought before? I have. I thought, well, when then? Does that make sense? And so for whatever reason, it's almost as if the delay completely nullifies the promise. Does that make sense? And that's that's my sort of fleshly, sinful heart, doubting God, doubting his word, doubting his character, uh, not giving him the benefit of the doubt. That's where my heart has gone in the past, right? As a believer, not as an unbeliever, as a believer, right? Post-19. Um, so, uh, is that true? Of course it's not true. Um, if God said that he's coming back, he's coming back. And how absurd is it for me to think that just because he is, uh, patient in delaying wrath, which is exactly what he is, um, that he's not coming, right? So this may seem far removed from all of you, um, because you, you can't, you can't get your head around it. But I think if you if you practice some of that that sort of self awareness, thinking of, 
you know, what are the areas in my life where I'm uh, specifically doubting God and his, his own promises? Do I, do I live by the promises of God? Do I take him at his word? Uh, you know, is he who he says that he is? And can I take it to the bank when he says it? And I think probably uh, whilst we don't have uh, any heretics in the room that doesn't believe that Jesus is coming back amongst us, the truth is, is that all of us deal with thoughts that are, that are akin to what we're talking about today, right? Does that make sense? So um, let me encourage you to be prayerful. Again, let me, if I can, encourage you to sojourn devotionally through the book of Jude. If you have not done it already, it's not too late. You can do it when we get done. Uh, the ESV sort of Bible slash journal that we gave to everyone at the outset um, of Peter. Uh, it's got First Peter, Second Peter, and Jude would be a really good way for you to do that. If you've lost yours and you need another one, we still have more to give out. It would be a good resource for you devotionally. So let's read it one more time. Uh, we've read it uh, already, but we'll read it again. Second Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 3 through 7. Uh, these, these are the words of God. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers or mockers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So let's do some context. And the context for where we're at is last week's sermon and last week's text. So just rewind to the beginning of the chapter with me. And let's read verses 1 and 2, because oftentimes verses 1 and 2 are preached not separately, but they are preached with the body of 1 through 7. Let's take a look at it. This was last week's sermon. This is uh, now the second letter I am writing you, beloved. Uh, in both of them, referring to First and Second Peter, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So all, last week was all about spiritual reminder. Uh, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. If you missed last week, let me encourage you to go listen to it. That's not because the minister, uh, you know, just sort of laid out legendary exposition, uh, but it, it is not a text that you can afford to miss uh, with this with this thing, right? Uh, especially since Ephesians 2.20 said that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. All of these things, I think, need to come into your into your uh, viewfinder. So let's let's uh, let's take notes here together, if we can, uh, kiddos. We're going to try to trek along with us today. Here's your first point: Herit verse three. Heretics are controlled by desire, aren't we all? You say yes, but there's a particular type of desire that we're talking about here. So heretics are controlled by desire, uh, kiddos. What you could write down in your notes is is this: false teachers. Do what they want, even if it's wrong, okay? False teachers do what they want, even if it's wrong, okay? Uh, and, and adults, that is exactly the point here, right? That there is no morality that these particular false teachers that Peter is confronting adhere to. There's no moral compass. There's no morality. They live for themselves. They have been called 
uh, a lot of different things uh, during the course of this letter, right? Um, in chapter 2 alone, they've been called experts in greed, right? Uh, people who sort of follow their own desire, do their own thing when they want, uh, because they want, they've been called, uh, they've been called on the carpet for exploiting others more than once uh, in this, and they are in this for selfish gain. This is the complete opposite of the Via Dolorosa. This is the complete opposite of the call of discipleship, right? Uh, for sacrifice and service to others, um, which is what all Christians, much less their shepherds, should be. Um, that's that's the idea. Uh, and Jude, verse 18, actually says almost the exact same thing as our verse here in verse 3. And Jude 18 says this, the brother Jesus says, They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Let's just, let's clear the air real quick. And most of you already know this, but we're just going to let, just reiterate it because it's really important. Um, when it says, uh, know, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, any time in the New Testament, I see any time, a grand majority of the time, most of the time, that uh, the Bible says in the last days, that's referring to something very specific. Now, if you were to read in the last days in the 21st century, with all of your baggage, you may think that that's something that's not yet happened and that it's happening forward. But the truth is, is that the more you read Paul and 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and not just Paul, but here also Peter, you'll find out that the authors of the New Testament, when they say in the last days, they are referring to the time between the first and the second coming of Christ. Okay? Meaning, uh, uh, in the last days are the days between the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the second coming which has not returned which means that in um, second Peter second Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 9 I think the guys in discipleship Thursday night group just went through second Timothy when he says in the last days he starts that off there he's referring to the last 2,000 years so anytime in the last days uh, for them is is anything that happens after the coming of the Messiah right the promise of God has come. The fulfillment of, of Israel in Christ has come. Anything after that is considered in the last days. If you don't know that when you read New Testament literature, you could go sideways in a hurry, okay? Uh, when these guys say in the last days, they they never meant, uh, well, someday in, you know, 25, you know 2500 AD. They, they, they weren't referring to that. Uh, they were referring to the current age after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are living in the last days. All of your forebears lived in the last days. The Middle Ages were in the last days. The Enlightenment of the Renaissance were in the last days. You currently in the 21st century are in the last days, per the Bible, okay? Uh, this is not a minority uh, interpretation. This is a majority interpretation, right, of men who in, who've interpreted the Bible for thousands of years, uh, it is only recently, I would say the last 150 years, that uh, particularly America has went end times crazy in terms of uh, their interpretation and made the Bible say things that just aren't there, okay? So the goal of Peter is to describe uh, the fact that, hey, you need to know that amongst you and in your churches, you're going to have false teachers. You're promised that, just as this audience was promised that, and as a result, you need to have your eyes peeled right up. But let's ask, ask a question. What is a scoffer? A scoffer or scoffing, these are not words that we use. When's the last time that you used the word scoff 
in your regular vernacular. Most of you, maybe not regularly. Ben says all the time. So tomorrow at the office, he's going to go in and talk to his boss about being a scoffer. I'm just kidding. Um, or scoffing regularly, right? So yeah, scoffing is, is some, not anything that we use. Mockery and open mockery uh, is something, or a mocker, uh, is something maybe that you would be more inclined uh, to use. Uh, these men, they ha- again, they have no moral compass, and because of that, uh, they mock the fact that uh, Jesus is not coming back. And we've talked about this before, that the Epicureans, which is a, a Greek sort of sect that's very uh, prominent, even that Paul interacts with in the book of Acts, <clears throat> doesn't believe anything past uh, this life, right? And so um, these men, they follow their own evil desires because they've got nothing to lose because no one's coming back. Does that make sense? If there is no judgment, then the logical rationale is, well, why don't we do what we want when we want if there is no retribution? And you know, some secular humanists may say, well, we should just be kind to one another because that's a good thing to do, right? Um, and I would just encourage you to study anthropology and history a little more to know about the true nature of man. Does that make sense? And the more you study anthropology as a study of man, and the more you study history, you will learn about the nature of man that it is not so benevolent. It is not so kind, right? Uh, that you can only redeem it and fence it in so much. Um, and it's a great idea. Uh, it, it just happens to be an idea that's not predicated on any kind of literary authority, which ours is the word of God. So these sinful desires um, that that these men are following is basically they do, again, as we told our kids, our, our point is they do what they want, when they want, how they want, even if it's wrong. Okay? Um, and the even if it's wrong thing there is, is really... Th- the most important thing. Most all people do what they want when they want, uh, obviously even the Christian, uh, but hopefully their desires have been redeemed. Chapter 2 verse 10 talks about these men. It talks about their desires uh, in Second Peter chapter 2 verse 10, and it says that these are the men that will be judged, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. I, I, I think probably verse three, uh, verse three in our text today is best summed up in the book of First John. Turn with me to First John chapter two, verse eighteen, if you have your Bibles. First John chapter two, verse eighteen. If if Jude eighteen is the closest sort of verse synonym to Second Peter chapter three, verse three, then certainly. First Peter, First uh, John, chapter two, verse eighteen, is one of the best commentaries on it, with the Bible interpreting the Bible. It says here <clears throat> in First John, chapter two, verse eighteen. John, as an old man, writes and says, "Children, in the last, it is the last hour." That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this that it is the last hour. What's the point? Uh, verse 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, First uh, John chapter 2, verse 18 are saying the same thing. Um, men that come up against Christ are called antichrist. Now, our culture is obsessed with the antichrist just being one person. But the more you read the Bible, the more you find out that uh, antichrist is really almost... Uh, 
a spirit. Uh, it is the spirit of Antichrist. It is anything that is contra or against Christ. And in this case, it's these false teachers who say, there's no judge. Jesus is not coming back. He wasn't telling the truth. He was misled. Perhaps he was a lunatic. Who knows? But he's not coming back. Um, so, uh, that is not to say that Antichrist doesn't have any have real theological significance in the end time, because it does. But it just means that uh, the majority of the time when uh, the Bible is speaking of Antichrist, it's talking about the spirit of Antichrist, and that is people uh, or thoughts that come up against Christ. And I think you can see that from reading this verse, right? Um, they are individuals, um, and then it's also, the Bible talks about the spirit of Antichrist, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. Um, so, remember who we're talking about here, um, uh, experts in greed, mists driven by the storm, slaves of depravity, Second uh, Peter has called these men, these particular adjectives, not very nice ones, all through the book, trying to get the attention and shake up. Uh, the dust here of what's going on, which brings us to our second point, verse four. Uh, if you're taking notes, so the first point for you adults was heretics are controlled by desire and their own evil desires, their selfish desires. Uh, point two, verse four, heretics have denied final judgment, which you already know, right? Heretics have denied final judgment. For you kiddos, if you wanted to uh, take note, it would merely be uh, false teachers don't think uh, that Jesus is a judge, okay? False teachers don't believe that Jesus is a judge, okay? Verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Um, particularly, uh, these men have denied the following. That is the explicit return of Christ. Second Peter chapter one, uh, earlier in our study uh, in this book, second Peter chapter one, verse 16, uh, Peter talks about that second coming as truth. And he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming, the word coming and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is saying, Hey, this is not our idea. This is not a myth. This was delivered to us once and for all, right? Um, and we are just passing it along to you, just like we did the gospel, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and following. And if that wasn't enough, uh, heaven came down and said, Jesus is coming back right after the coronation of Jesus at the ascension of Jesus, Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 11, uh, which we actually read last week in our sermon, I believe, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? The angels say in Acts 1. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him going into heaven. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And when he does, he is going to uh, give all of those who have passed a resurrection body. You have the promise that um, Jesus is not just a judge when he comes back uh, in that second coming, but he's going to do more than that. Uh, every Christian who's ever lived and has lived is, is currently living without an eternal body. And at the second coming of Jesus, the book of Romans says that they get, uh, they get new heavenly bodies. We get that promise 
from Jesus' own uh, heavenly body, which is physical, which can breathe, which can eat, right? Uh, which uh, is, is not held together completely by space as he's able to move uh, in ways that we don't think that he's, he's able to move. He's, he's, he's there, right? And so you have some of those promises. Uh, the promise is that Jesus is a judge, but he's also a redeemer. And the good news is, is that while this body is going to perish, right, get arthritis, die, you're going to be get, you're going to be given a new body that's going to live forever, and so will you ever be with God in that body. Incredible. Our minds don't even have the category um, to entertain it. With our depraved minds, our, as I call it, dirt brain, which is actually made of dirt, right? As God made it in Genesis, so the story goes. Uh, we think, how boring must eternity truly be? And only a generation like ours could think something like that. Um, the truth is, is you'll have redeemed desires. You won't know boredom. You'll have no category for want. Um, and you won't think with the same uh, fleshly mind and heart as you do today. So heretics have uh, denied final judgment, and you believe in it as a Christian fully, and not just that, but the redemption. Um, notice this, though. It, it says here, it, it's very clear about what's going on in the church because of what Peter is saying. He says in verse 4, uh, For ever since the, the fathers have fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. He's, he's basically quoting what's being said in the church. Hey, hey, the laws of nature have always been happening. They're going to continue to happen for a really long time. And really, here's the thing. Nothing is changing. There is no judgment. Things will continue the way that they've always been. Tomorrow, there will be more gravity. Tomorrow, we'll follow into one more cycle of human history. And on and on it goes. Nothing's going to change. I'm telling you, there's no judgment to come. Live your life. Eat, drink, and be merry. Do what you will, even if it's wrong or who says it's wrong. Do it. Enjoy life. You, you, hear, you, you hear the appeal in this teaching, right? And this, this was the teaching. Um, and this teaching is, I think, held by the majority of secular humanism, don't you think? I mean, that's, that's it. That there's, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I mean, there's no, there's no retribution. There's no justice. There's no consequence to your actions. There was a sentiment and has been a sentiment, not just the New Testament times, but the Old Testament times, that the prophecies of God, the visions that have come forth, right, and the truths of God um, were all for naught. They just never really came true. Ezekiel chapter 12, uh, verse 22, really captures the heart of the people. This is what Ezekiel uh, chapter 12, verse 22 says. <clears throat> um, Son of man, what is the proverb that uh, you have about the land of Israel saying, the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing. What is the proverb that you have heard? That every vision comes to nothing. There are a lot of divinations or a lot of sort of visions happening and prophecies and this is going to happen and that's going to happen and nothing ever came of it. And so they were wondering, well, God's word must not be true. And this actually happens over and over and over again. In Malachi, people begin to call into question, uh, you know, God's action. 
Jeremiah, same situation. All these visions, all these prophecies and promises happen, but no one ever makes good on the promise. This is the spirit of what's going on. Jesus is not coming back. Now, you tell me you haven't felt this before. Of course you've felt it before. And it's why you must fight tooth and nail, right? Uh, Perhaps the greatest fight in the Christian life is battling unbelief, right? Battling unbelief, which leads to uh, a lot of situations, um, most notably sin. Um, So um, people say, well, maybe he doesn't exist. He's not coming back. Um, there is no final judgment. Things are going to continue over and over and over today. Um, and, and as I said before, this is the message of secular humanism. Man's the center of the universe, not God. Therefore, we don't have to worry about any of that. Just continue on as you have. And, of course, what, what is the Bible? The Bible is an absolute jackhammer, right? It is a, it is a weapon uh, that comes up, it's a baseball bat that says, nope, that's not going to work. Jesus is coming back. And the Bible and all the truth in it about the, the return of Jesus and the character of Jesus that is not only Redeemer but also Judge is an affront to the secular humanism that says man is the center of the universe and there is no judge. It says to the contrary, he is coming to judge the living and the dead. Retribution will be paid on those who reject the Son of God, particularly because he absorbed the furious wrath of God. Such a rejection uh, uh, deserves uh, God's own justice. When you and I look at God's timing in his return, which all of us probably have, I'm assuming, I have on many, 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 When I do that, this is what I'm saying. I'm making a moral judgment and saying, God, you're well overdue. You're going to come back. We're going to do this. But it's not this only. When you and I constantly call God into question, we're making moral judgments on the work and person of God. Now, don't mishear me. Part of being a Christian is struggling with God. The nuanced definition of theology is not just study of God, it is also struggle with God, and that's what it means to be human, is being creation and struggling with your creator in that wonderful love relationship of understanding the infinite from a finite position, right? But when we, if your life is dominated by calling God into question, uh, you need to rethink it because you're, what you're doing is you're constantly making moral judgments of God and calling God into the dock, right? And the Bible has verses for things like that. It looks at you and says over and over and over again, what will the pot, the clay pot, say to the master potter? What will exactly he do, right? Peter's point is exactly this. Life doesn't just go on. Things don't, as verse 4 say, just continue to happen over and over and over. People thought that way before, Peter says, and this is where it got them. And that brings us to verses 5 through 7, which is our last point. If you're taking notes, heretics, these heretics particularly, 
overlook a sustaining creator and judge. Point three, and our last one today, heretics overlook a sustaining creator and judge. Heretics overlook a sustaining creator and judge. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, Verse 6, and by these means uh, of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 5 says this, um, the world was made with water, by water, in the form of water and the word of God. So if you go to read Genesis chapter 1, verse 6 and verse 9, you'll learn a little bit more about that. Genesis chapter 1, verse 6 and 9 says that there was a water and that God separated the waters. This is probably what's in view when he says in verse 5 that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water. That's probably what he means. And through water by the word of God, God spoke and these things happened uh, is how the Genesis record goes. Um, And of course, we know that God spoke creation into being and believe it as being literally true. You understand, right? Uh, God's word has incredible saving power and also creating power, many of which are the same as you and I are also new creations. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, uh, all their host. So we're trying, Peter's trying to show the individuals who are falling prey to the false teachers the fact that there is no judge, that they have a creator and they have a sustainer. Let me ask you a question. Do you live your life in full view of the fact that not only did God create everything in this world, but everything in the galaxy that this world holds, and in fact, everything in the universe, down to the subatomic level. And do you believe, and is your worldview big enough to know that he holds everything together, that he's not just a a creating God, but also a sustaining one? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, speaking of Jesus, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What would Monday morning's work look like if the commute was full of the knowledge that everything that you experience today is being held together by God? My arguments would be a lot more trivial, wouldn't they? My perspective, my quickness to kindness and love, my quickness to confession of sin would probably be massive if I really understood the flood in which I was living. Creator, sustainer, and then Peter attaches to that sort of marriage, judge. And by bringing out verses 5 through 7, what he brings us in verse 6 is saying, hey, there are people who said like this in verse 4, things are just going to go on like they always have. And what happened was the destruction of the world by water. And those people in that day just thought that things are just going to keep happening like they've always happened. And you know what happened? They got up one day and it didn't. 
It didn't, which is what he says in verse 6. And by that means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's trying to tell them that no, verse 4 is not true. It's what they think. It's maybe what you think or have been led to believe. But things don't just keep happening. He's, he's making a deep plea for the judgment of God. He's saying that judgment is coming. Not too many verses ago, we, we talked about this specifically. Turn in with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. This is what it says um, there. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, Peter says, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of, of the ungodly. This is a part of a larger if-then. If he did not spare the ungodly this, if he did not spare the ungodly this, and then he goes on, he's building a case to say, God, you know, God is going to continue to, done, to do what he's always done, be it Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, which was kind of the champion uh, that's always been held an example of the justice of God, not only by the Old Testament prophets, but the New Testament writers as well, which is probably why we have the cultural disdain for Sodom and Gomorrah that we do have, because the Bible specifically, for whatever reason, holds it up as uh, sort of something for the judgment of God. And I think the reason it holds it up, but there are many, many reasons, is that God, God promised not to destroy the world with water. Again, this was his, this was his promise. But then verse 7 tells us that, that actually um, the world's going to be destroyed or, or judged by fire. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Paul also talks about this, specifically 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Let me ask you a question, and this is, this is hard. Obviously, there's, there's some imager, imagery here. Uh, to, to what degree the metaphors exist, I, I don't exactly know. But I know that judgment from God is nothing that anyone wants to experience, no matter the metaphor, no matter the reality, no matter the literal nature of the word. Um, and the truth is, um, is that these images are given for a good reason, aren't they? Um to be separated from God. I don't, I don't think that there's a physical metaphor that we could give a good category for, for, for what it means to be judged by God. So do I believe in um, eternal conscious torment, or as the scholastic world calls it, ECT? Yes, I do. Now, if you're a good liberal, then you call the likes of Augustine, who first really pushed this hard as a theological truth, uh, a crazy person, but I, I follow the fathers, and particularly Augustine, and I think that that's the truth. Now it causes me a lot of trouble as a compassionate Christian, right? My wife, on more than one occasion in our seventeen years of marriage, has received a telephone call of me having a semi-nervous breakdown. What's wrong, honey? Hell, that's what's wrong, honey. That's what's wrong. The Christian certainly should struggle with these things. 
at the same time, whilst giving God the benefit of the doubt of how these things happen. So here's a question for you today, and perhaps the application for you for verses five through seven. Why does God include graphic pictures like this and imagery in his word to describe his judgment? Why does he use these things? And after answering the question why, which I won't do for you, what is its purpose? What's the purpose of those? How do you answer those questions? So I want some actual feedback. I'm going to look you for a second. Is that okay? Can you, can you answer can you answer those two questions for me? Why does God include graphic pictures and imagery in his word to describe his judgment? Question one. Question two, what is its purpose? And this is where we'll end today. Because there's sure been a ton of it in Second Peter. There's been no shortage of this. And so the question has to be asked, right? Why? And what's the purpose? Okay? Oh, don't be bashful. You sit around and talk at the house for a solid hour when we're done here. Only to go to the same restaurant and eat together for another two hours. You have plenty to say. Okay, so, what do we think? He's expressing truth. Right, yeah. What's the purpose of that? Great. Well done. Yeah, that's it. Anybody else? It is. That's right. That's good. That's good. Anybody else? Very good. Anybody else? Christian? Yeah, and, and I think Christians, Robin, you, you, you can't you can't ever look at the cross. Um, you can't ever look at the cross or the cup, which is what we take every week, without seeing these these images, right? Uh, the punishment of God and the justice of God is never anything that's apart from a Sunday experience, as long as you're taking the cup and bread on a weekly basis, because you're looking full face into the judgment of God, and a different metaphor that's rooted in history. Jesus actually lived in Palestine, historically, actually died. There is no metaphor. I mean, those cup, that cup and bread is metaphor for you. It's example. It's a, it's a grace and a message to you. Um, but its purpose is to show you that God is judge. That, that's it. Anybody else? Far be it from 
righteous death. Not the whole the, the, the Lord of the whole earth. Yeah, um, yeah. So no, that's th- that's it. Um, will um, will God do what is right? And are these metaphors accurate? Yeah, it is. We don't get up on a Sunday morning and sing about the justice of God, do we? We don't do that. We don't. But as Christians, when we look at the cross every single week, we probably should, uh, because it's because of justice that. Or, or a lack of justice and mercy, really, in our case, that we're loved, right? Um, very good, Andrew. Uh, surely will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right. Um, so uh, that's um, that's it. And, of course, what are you to do with these things? You're to do what last week said, um, and that is Peter wanted to stir a reminder into the into the hearts and the minds of these to say, hey, listen, I want this so implanted in you that when I'm gone, that you can recall it just like that, right? This is the reason that as Christians, family members, we're called to recall the things of God in our homes, to talk about them, to teach them to our children, to make them the centerpiece of our home, uh, that the gossip of the day uh, should not be uh, the central message of our homes, that complaint and grumbling um, and bickering and fighting and logistics should not be the message of our lives, uh, but that we should live in Christian love and kindness, recalling the truths of God to steer our lives, right? Uh, giving God uh, honor, worship, the benefit of, of the doubt. Uh, well, thank you for your attention. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to ask Christian uh, and Pat if you guys will serve us the Lord's table. Uh, today I'm going to pray for you guys, and then we're going to uh, we're going to take the table. Okay, uh, Lord, we love you, and we thank you so much for your grace and for the commandment to get together um, and the grace that it brings. God, I pray that you would bring great encouragement to us today through your Word. Um, that you're a good God um, who is far beyond uh, our comprehension in so many ways. And so may we continue, God, to give you the benefit of the doubt through your revealed word as we look to you as judge. Um, As we come and take this table, help us to see your commitment to justice um, and your, your commitment to your character, God, as you show us great love and mercy at Christ's expense. Um, So help us to take well today, God. Um, Thank you for your presence with us. Continue to teach us, God, throughout this week. Um, And God, may we take with us good news and bad news as gospel speakers, uh, marketplace workers this week. And all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you free to take the Lord's table? Thanks for listening to the Ecclesia of Newton Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to show your support, find out more information, or hear more like this, check out our website, ecclesianewton.com.